You know the secrets of making friends? They are so simple and easy. Welcome back to the Coffee Fights Crew Sherlock episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we are reviewing Sherlock season four. Are we saying season? Series. Get it right, Jason. Series four, episode one, The Six Clatchers. <laughs> nice. No, The Six Thatchers, written by Mark Gaddis, directed by Rachel Talalay. IMDb gave this an 8.4, and as of today, there was still no Rotten Tomatoes score. They had an audience score of 66%. 66%. Yeah, there was some negative reviews and comments about this episode. We will get into both the positive and negatives, as well as our opinions and viewpoints. But first, we're going to start you off with a little about the episode. So we usually look at the title and its meaning. Often here with Sherlock, they're going to be callbacks to the Conan Doyle original books. Yes, and this episode has so many. We have figured out a lot of them, but most likely we'll miss more than have. Yeah, well, there's an obvious one right here with the title, which is a reference to the story, The Adventure of the Six Napoleons, which contained the story of the Black Pearl of the Borgias. Yes, and this was Six Busts of Napoleon rather than the busts we have in this one. And inside of it was the Black Pearl, which was referenced as well in this episode with one of the cases. Yes, and that's what Sherlock initially thought was going to be inside of there. Right. Where they ended up finding the Agra flash drive. It's a lot of like, you know, like a wink. If you imagine you say something that is a call out to something else and you wink at the camera. Hmm. Well, this one would have Sherlock like winking left and right. Constantly looking weird, like because there's so many winks in this. Yes, you also have the whole Norbury thing. So, in the story The Adventure of the Yellow Face, Sherlock rushes too quickly to a conclusion and has a rare slip where he misses the solution, which lies in the town of Norbury mm-hmm. in the original story. Here, of course, he misses the read on Vivian Norbury when he first meets her in the opening scene. Then at the end of the episode, he tells Mrs. Hudson if he ever gets overconfident to whisper Norbury to him, and that would be a big help. In the books, he tells Dr. Watson, if it should ever strike you that I am getting a little overconfident in my powers or giving less pains to a case than it deserves, kindly whisper Norbury in my ear, and I shall be infinitely obliged to you. So that's pretty much a direct quote of what he says in this episode, too. They, They lifted it. Yeah, he's after Mary is killed, saving Sherlock when she jumps in front of the bullet from a gun of the disgruntled Secret Service desk jockey, Vivian Norbury, another wink, <laughs> he asks Miss Hudson, if you ever think I'm becoming a bit full of myself, cocky or overconfident, just say the word Norbury to me, would you? Just that, and I'd be grateful. So very similar. Yes, and it has a deeper point of showing this is one of the first times, at least I can remember, where Sherlock seems to believe and accept that he's made a mistake with the way he handled her, first on missing the read of what she really was, thinking she was just a stenographer. Then in one of the last scenes where Mary ends up getting shot in their confrontation with Vivian, Sherlock pushes her too far 
he can't help but to unravel the mystery and tell her about the story of her pathetic life, which pushes her to the point of taking action against Sherlock, and that's what instigates Mary jumping in front of him. So I think he really grapples with that later, and that's what leads to him saying that to Mrs. Hudson. Yes, at that time, someone trained would have would be trying to de-escalate mm-hmm. this conversation. Instead, he's escalating it tremendously. Because he just can't help showing off his mm-hmm. intellect. That's what he does. That's what makes it fun for him. It's almost like in House episodes, mm-hmm. if you watch that show, where for him, it's more about the puzzle, and he'll go in and say these really rude. off-color, rude things to the family. And even when... They have cured the patient. If he hasn't solved the mystery yet, he can't let it go. Okay, a couple more notes. We had some music notes for the episode, all of them by David Arnold and Michael Price. There was Final Act, One More Miracle, Double Room, Two Dartmoor, and Sherlock Pink. At least those were the ones I could find. There might have been a few more. Very well done. Set the tone. Didn't take you out of it. Mm Mm-hmm. Now on to fun facts. Now, this is such a long episode that I'm not going to get too crazy on the fun (laughs) facts. On our Twitter, we have a story. And afterwards, we were also sent the story by one of our clatchers, at Sahajesh. Cumberbatch is related to Holmes. Yes. This is from the Associated Press. Genealogy detectives have discovered that Benedict Cumberbatch, the British actor who portrays Sherlock Holmes in the PBS television series, is distantly related to the author who created the iconic character more than a century ago. Cumberbatch, 40, and the late Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who died in 1930, were 16th cousins, twice removed, according (laughs) to the website Ancestry.com. Doyle and Cumberbatch's common ancestor was John of Gaunt, the Duke of Lancaster, and the fourth son of King Edward III of England, who lived in the 14th century. John of Gaunt was Doyle's 15th great-grandfather and Cumberbatch's 17th great-grandfather. Wow. I wonder if he knows that, the connection to... Actually, he doesn't. goes on to say they haven't told the actor of the connection. Uh, wow. Which is odd. <laughs> well, I'm sure he's probably seen it by now with the article up. This was a quote from Ancestry. Making family history connections is similar to piecing together a mysterious puzzle. One that the great Sherlock Holmes himself would be intrigued to solve. And that's from Lisa Elsley. Now, we have a bunch of references throughout the show. I, like I've already said, already go back. Mm-hmm. But, so we'll sprinkle them in. But I'll start with this one. Remember when Holmes is talking to uh, the baby? Yes. Baby Holmes? I love that. And you don't know it's the baby at first. And baby he's talking Watson. Very in- intensely. And it's like he's yelling at Watson, right? Yes. This is what he says. As ever, Watson, you see, but you do not observe. To you, the world remains an impenetrable mystery, whereas to me, it's an open book. Hard logic versus romantic whimsy. That is your choice. You fail to connect actions to their consequences. (laughs) Now, for the last time, if you want to keep the rattle, you do not throw the rattle. (laughs) That was one of my favorite lines. I mean, it makes sense what he's saying, but you don't say that to a baby. But it's hilarious. I, I have to say, we'll talk about our overall thoughts in a minute. There were some parts of this episode that were a little bit disappointing to me, but it was moments like this that brought me back to the original humor of Sherlock being Sherlock in the funniest possible way. And the reveal was perfect. In the books, Holmes' words to Watson, in the short stories, Holmes does say, you see, but you do not observe. And he does this to make a serious point about how the detective has trained himself to view the world. You see, but you do not observe. 
The distinction is clear. For example, you have frequently seen the steps which lead up from the hall to this room. How many are there? How many? I don't know. Quite so. You have not observed, and yet you have seen, that this is my point. Now, I know that there are 17 steps because I have both seen and observed. And we have talked about this in our precast. Yeah, the the number 17 comes in later. The fans did some research on that. All right, before we get into going through the plot scene by scene, what were your overall impressions on this episode? It's been a while since we had our last Sherlock episode, The Abominable Bride. Yes, been a while. There's been a lot of anticipation surrounding its comeback. So what did you think about The Six Thatchers? I really did not like it the first time we watched it. Mm -hmm. The second time, I liked it a lot more. I was much more into it, and to be completely transparent here, the first time we watched it, we went out to eat at a fancy (laughs) restaurant, and I ordered a scotch, and he gave me three fingers worth. (laughs) So I was a little buzzed, and then I think I had sake after that. Yeah, and we were also just in a bit of a food coma, so it was hard to get through, but that was one of my points also. This episode was an hour and 50 minutes long, so nearly two hours they are normally about an hour and a half, but this felt even longer yeah. than an hour and 50. I think had they cut it, maybe even by half an hour, it would have, been it would have benefited from it. There were points where it felt like it dragged mm-hmm. a little bit. As much as I was happy to get the other look of Watson's storyline, I felt like they went a little too far into Mary. And I know that they had to do that because this was her final episode, But some of the points of the journey that she went on just felt a little bit drawn out. And there were other lulls throughout. I mean, it had some high points. Yeah. Uh, They just had some trouble transitioning from one to the next. Also, we've talked about episodes where the villain is less than satisfying. Mm -hmm. And this was certainly one of those episodes for me. I mean, the stenographer that we saw for literally 10 seconds... At the opening of the episode, that turned out to not tie into really anything else. I mean, she was associated with Agra, but they led you to believe from the close of last series mm-hmm. all the way through to b- the beginning of this episode that it was going to tie into Moriarty. I mean, last time it was he's back, and now it's the case corresponds to him. And it literally, as far as we know, had nothing to do with Moriarty. And actually, your sentiments is mirrored by one of our clatchers. At Alan Fox wrote to us, don't think Mariotti actually had anything to do with that story at all, (laughs) which was kind of odd, to be honest. And if the writers are true to the canon in The Dying Detective, then we probably won't face Mariotti till the final episode. So I do agree with you on both of your thoughts. One, the Mariotti thing, or the lack of a bad guy. Mm -hmm. I think... Even though it wasn't Moriarty's plan coming about now, I think he was very present. And I think he was very present and only Moriarty can do. What I mean by that is he had Sherlock broken again, and he's dead. Sherlock wasn't able to pick up on things that he normally would pick up quickly. And I believe Mary is dead because of how Sherlock was mentally. And this, the underlining tone was, even though it wasn't Moriarty, we kept thinking it might be, and so did Sherlock, which means Sherlock was reacting differently and wasn't completely open-minded. Also, keep in mind, we haven't seen this series' main villain. Well, that's what I was going to say. I know that, sure, 
Moriarty was in Sherlock's head like he always is, but that felt more like a tease of writing by the end of the episode, like a fake out just to get you in on the ride. Mm. I actually attribute a lot of Sherlock's downfall to completely different things in this episode. I attribute it partially in the beginning to him being addicted to needing a case and wanting to see patterns. He was following all these very trivial cases that Lestrade was giving him, hoping to find connections between them. Mm -hmm. He was obsessively going on his cell phone, trying to solve cases online. They even made mention in the first scene that it seemed like he was on drugs, the way he was reacting at that cabinet meeting. But in larger part, I attribute it to his opening of emotions from the time of Watson and Mary's wedding. Yes. Sherlock has been getting more intimately involved in a way that we haven't seen him with this couple. They've become almost a trio we see within the episode, even solving cases together, bringing their baby along. He allowed his caring for them to almost get the better of him. I mean, one of the ways that AJ wound up tracking down both Sherlock and Mary was to find that picture of them together at the wedding. And I think his love for them maybe took him out of his game a little bit. But all of that was great. I really enjoyed that. So I I think the lack for me was a bit in that missing the bad guy. Mm -hmm. We did hear so much about Toby Jones coming into this season and that you were going to see a lot of him and it was going to be great fun and all throughout... Episode one, we did not see one clip of Toby Jones yet, which I I felt was a little strange. You're Jonesing for Toby Jones? I am, but there were some things that I really enjoyed, so I'm excited to talk about that. We have 14 scenes plus a post-credit scene to go through. Now, again, this was such a long episode, and I, I, when I tell people about Sherlock, I tell them each one is like a a little movie, Mm -hmm. and they all hold their own. This one, I can legit say if this was released as a movie, it's not good. Well, I think you hit it right there because most of them do feel structured like a mini movie, whereas this felt like it was supposed to be a TV episode, but just went too long. Oh, and that's the second point I was going to bring up. I agree with you with the sections, and we will go deeper into it, that, you know, we're a lull, made it too long, but Mm -hmm. every section had a meaning to it. So I don't even know how you would cut this down. Every section Every was... section independently, but it didn't have a beginning, middle, and end movie structure like a lot mm-hmm. of their episodes normally do. And, and if it did, introducing Vivian as the big bad in the beginning, but then you also had AJ, who was part of Agra, and then we were thinking it was Moriarty, but then Toby's not there. It was just a little confused. Like they were trying to tie up all of last season... Tell the whole Mary story so they could wrap it up and get her out of there. Set up this season. It was too much. And I they wish... kept thinking if they made it longer, that would resolve it. And it it didn't quite do that for me. I wish they would do four episodes. And then they could extrapolate further on this one and make it a more of a, a whole story. Yeah. I think more shorter episodes would have benefited this series better so far. So far. Yeah. But anyhow, let's get into our synopsis of our plot. There's a lot to talk about. We open up scene one at that cabinet office meeting, whatever you want to call it, where Mycroft tells Sherlock about the official story on the death of Charles Augustus Magnuson. 
they're going to release that he was shot by an overeager squad member, complete with doctored footage. This is how we ended off the last episode with Sherlock shooting him Mm -hmm. and having a ton of witnesses not knowing how he was going to get out of it. We see here he has been cleared so that he can deal with Moriarty's posthumous game that everyone thinks is being run. He's planned something, something long-term. Something that would take effect if he never made it off that rooftop alive. Posthumous revenge. No, better than that. Posthumous game. We brought you back to deal with this. What are you going to do? Wait. Wait? Of course wait. I'm the target. Targets wait. Look, whatever's coming, whatever he's lined up, I'll know when it begins. I always know when the game is on. You know why? Why? Because I love it. Despite the seriousness of the situation, Sherlock can't help enjoying himself, playing with everybody. He says at one point, I always know when the game is on because I love it. And this is also our brief introduction to Vivian Norbury. This scene was great. We're coming off of excited to see Sherlock and we have Mycroft in the same scene. Mm -hmm. The banter off of uh, Sherlock and Mycroft was good, especially with the added suspension of the fact that He's in front of some very important people mm-hmm. and he's acting like this. <laughs> and they're trying to, his brother's trying to get him off of this sentence, basically, and he's not taking it seriously. I guess Sherlock already knew they needed him so bad that it didn't matter. Yeah, I guess so. But it, like I said, they did make a reference to it almost seems like you're on drugs. And it did feel like he was manic. He couldn't contain himself. He says that it was because he was so happy that he thought he was being exiled, sent on a dangerous mission, having to leave because of what he'd done or something terrible to happen to him. And now he's got a new lease on life. So he says it's because he's happy about that. We quickly jump to the next scene where Sherlock gives us a monologue about that tale of the merchant in Samara who cannot escape his fate. He says, there once was a merchant in a famous market of Baghdad. He saw a stranger looking at him in surprise and knew the stranger was death. Pale and trembling, the merchant fled the marketplace and made his way many miles to the city of Samara. There he was sure death could not find him. Then he saw, waiting for him, that grim figure. Very well, said the merchant, I give in. I am yours. But tell me, why did you look so surprised this morning in Baghdad? Because, said death, I had an appointment with you tonight in Samara. (laughs) I don't know about you, this immediately reminded me of the story that we hear in Harry Potter yeah, with the tale of the Deathly Hallows and the three brothers trying to escape death. And it was sort of the same meaning behind it then that they couldn't do it, at least the first two brothers couldn't. The last one wound up being able to for a while, but then eventually meeting death on his own terms. This man couldn't escape his fate either, and Sherlock does not like that. It doesn't sit well with him, this idea of predetermination. That's why Sherlock made up his own version, one where the merchant went to a different location and ended up being fine, and then becoming a pirate. <laughs> For some reason, as Mycroft says. I love that. So this is even at a young age, Sherlock trying to make it himself feel like we can create our own destinations. Nothing is predefined. Yeah, fighting against that in a scene a little bit later, he does meet with Mycroft to talk about a premonition that he has. And you can tell he's striking out against that idea of fate. And Mycroft is kind of laughing at him even now. But it's a theme that's going to run throughout the episode and something that's going to bother him in an existential way. And things, things you can't outrun, things that are inevitable, 
that's kind of a Moriarty too, right? Could that be how he feels about Moriarty at this time? I'm sure, but it's the biggest foreshadowing for Mary's death, and we get it very early on. She talks throughout the episode about how all she wanted was to find a little bit of peace, but in some way she knew she could never outrun her past. It would always catch up with her. Right. So this is the theme behind it, and this is the villain. Yeah, perhaps that's true. It's just your past coming to meet you. Vivian Norbury also mentions that in the last scene that she thought she could get away with it. And if she did enough to bury her secrets, she could move on and have a quiet life. But it came back around. She even tries it there. Just let me leave. Let me walk away. So after that, we move into, I guess, the meat of the episode. We start out with the birth of Rosamond Mary. So our Mary goes into labor in the car on the way to the hospital and gives birth to a baby girl. They name Molly, Mrs. Hudson, and Sherlock as grandparents. And Sherlock's addiction has turned into an obsession that we talked about with his phone. We see that he texts rudely all the way through the baptism. And then we see the scene that you mentioned with Sherlock talking to the baby about logic. This is also during the montage that they had with Sherlock taking all the cases. Mm -hmm. Essentially, Sherlock is an addict. And right now, his addiction is cases. But also, I believe... He's obsessively trying to find the case that has to do with Moriarty. Yes, we're going to get into that in the next scene. You also here, though, get that scene of Watson flirting for the first time with the girl on the bus. This whole part was very fun because we had the play on what's going on with Mary, what's going on with Watson, and even Watson at that point is still sucked into Sherlock's world. I mean, they had 59 missed calls. And it was Mary saying that she's ready to have the baby, and yes. they were too involved in their case. <laughs> Which is why she borderline ended up giving birth inside of the car on the way there. And that's one of the other funny parts of this episode, is when she pushed Sherlock's face into the windshield. Yeah. That's very Mary-like, because she's not going <laughs> to bow down to his whims. And, you know, him being on the phone and all that, even during the baptism, that one I didn't understand. Like, he couldn't... Just wait two seconds for it. But I guess he's just so enthralled. Like you said, it's like an addict. He, this is boring to him. The regular things that people go through in life, in their relationships, having a child. He doesn't really understand the big deal yeah. of the christening. The, the cases are more exciting to him. And I liked him trying to adjust to having a baby around. Like you said, when he's talking to him, almost like it's John there. Yeah. He doesn't know how to talk to him like it's a baby. Her, like she's a baby. I almost wish they would have shown more of that. I know that they were speeding things up in this sense, but mm-hmm. then it felt so drawn out in other areas. This was not only funny to me, but really integral to, I think, how the dynamics are going to change. Yeah. That's I, what we're I excited about. I might have liked a bit more. Yeah, a yeah. bit more of him kind of being grumpy about this new baby, stealing some of the attention and the thunder. I mean, it was even... Really funny at one point when they were walking out the door and Watson was talking to Lestrade, was it? About what is it going to be like having a baby around? He's basically implying that it's been like that the whole time because he said to care for Sherlock. Oh, I don't remember that. I don't remember if he was talking to Lestrade or, or Mrs. Hudson, but that, that was good stuff to me. And another interesting thing is, and at this time, Sherlock 
and John don't know this, but Rosamund is Mary's real first name. Her actual full name is Rosamund Mary, so she's given the baby her entire name. That's true. And also, like I said, we just get that little bit of allusion to what's happening with Watson on the bus. We don't really know who this girl is or what it's going to turn into, but they're going to return to that later. We'll go back for now to Sherlock with his obsessively solving these multiple crimes simultaneously, manically. Hmm. And as you mentioned, he is trying to work out exactly what Moriarty's game is and how all of, all of this works together. So he's taking case after case, hoping it will lead him to the larger scheme. And this gives us that great montage that they had. Very fun, good rhythm to it. One thing I love about this show, and I've always loved about it, is they're not the first ones to do this, but I think they're the first ones to really perfect it, is where they have text that floats in the, uh, in the background when he's texting or reading a text, mm-hmm. or video chat that they have in the background when he's looking at the phone, pictures on the computer. And in this episode, they, they like amped it up even more. Mm-hmm. It's very brilliantly done. I wish Mr. Robot would do that a little bit. <laughs> that would be nice. But of those texts that were coming across the screen, there was a lot that was showing you what cases he was currently involved in. All of these cases were winks to older books. Sure. So I'm not going to go through all of them. But when Sherlock is going ham on cases, all these Easter eggs, for example, the Dusty Death case, which is one that pops up. This is from the story Sherlock Holmes and the Jeweler of Florence. The book itself is quoting Macbeth with the line, all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death, hmm. which essentially means you can't outrun your past, yeah. just like Mary in this episode and just like everything we just discussed. So again, there's so much going on in this episode. It's not like it was poorly thought through and not the typical Sherlock. No, they. they <clears throat> I wonder if... They're falling victim to some of the Mr. Robot in trying to bring in so many allusions and references to outside things and be very clever about that, that they almost missed the bigger picture of the episode and what keeps you moving through a two-hour episode like this, that you need that central theme. I think, though, the payoff will be episode two and three, and we'll realize how much they needed to do this to get to two and three. Yeah, it's a foundation. Another one was the thumb in the bag of ice. And there was a funny one, wrong thumb. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a reference to a short story called The Adventure of the Engineer's Thumb. And then there was the circus torso, which is a reference to The Adventure of the Valleyed Lodger. The Canary Trainer, which is actually a short story by Nicholas Meyer, which was written more recently. And then... There's a few other ones, but one in particular, the jellyfish case that they joked about. Mm -hmm. That's a reference to the adventure of the lion's mane, which is a lion's mane jellyfish. And there's more to it within there. There was a lot of uh, the way they spoke off of each other, Mm -hmm. bounced off of what the books were about as well. Yes, and this all culminates when Sherlock eventually takes on the case of Charlie Wellsboro. Charlie is the missing son of a cabinet minister who is found dead in a car wreck, despite seemingly being gone on a gap year in Tibet. When a drunk driver crashes into the parked car in his parents' driveway and it explodes, they find the burned body of Charlie, who had already been dead a week. Sherlock, Watson, and Mary then visit the house, where Sherlock quickly solves the case. 
He explains to the parents that the first part of the conversation the father had with Charlie was a pre-recorded video meant to trick him into coming outside near the car where Charlie was hiding under a fake vinyl seat so he could surprise him. But while under there, apparently he had a seizure and died, and no one thought to look for him until the accident when the vinyl melted away, exposing his body. Okay, so these scenes, a few things. One I really liked was that we got to see John and Sherlock uh, doing their thing again, Mm -hmm. and we got to see John kind of apologizing for him. The woman says, is he mad? And he says, no. Um, basically, no, he's just an asshole. Yes, but this trust is me, classic, he needs to do this. <laughs> classic setup. I loved that. But one thing that bothered me is we have this case with too many coincidences. Three, to be exact. One, his son is in the car and passes out where he can't wake up. It's a kind of seizure where like, he's just dead there mm-hmm. forever. And he has on this suit... Fake vinyl seat. That was a little bit... You don't need to do that at night. You just hide on the... (laughs) It was also a little bit weird. Where do you get a fake vinyl seat to run a surprise like that? Yeah. Uh, That was a little bit odd, yeah. Two, that a drunk driver goes up this long driveway. (laughs) Crashes into the only car in the middle of a huge... There's like empty field to the left and right of the driveway. And crashes it into it behind. And then there's an explosion. Yes. Those don't happen, those Somet- kind of explosions. Somehow you saw the, the gas tank being punctured because gas trickled down. Okay. I don't know, but you're right. And also just the fact that there were so many cases coming at him and Sherlock decided to take this one, not knowing that when he got there, he was going to make the link to the missing bust. And so that's my third one. Just happenstance. The bust. Which, yeah, exactly. So that was kind of thin. Yeah the way they would get us, the viewers, into the whole... A little superficial, but I was willing to forgive them that because Mm -hmm. they did do a good job with the awkwardness of Sherlock meeting Mm -hmm. the parents, the fact that you did want to see that, okay, we got a case going. It has a name. They have to go investigate. They have to talk to the parents. It's really fun to see Sherlock coming up with these deductions. He knew right off the bat there was something wrong with two types of vinyl in a car. Hmm. So that was all really great. It was fun that he came up with the deduction of there's something missing on this table. So while he's there, Sherlock glances at the table and has a premonition. We see him sort of get taken out of the moment for a second. It looks like he's dazing out. And he tells Watson that premonitions are important because they represent data that comes too fast for the conscious mind to comprehend, which I liked. It felt a little strange for somebody like Sherlock to put faith in something like a premonition, but it was very interesting. And you find out that this table is a shrine to Margaret Thatcher, the first female prime minister, and that on there was a plaster bust of her that is missing and Sherlock somehow knows that's going to be important. Very odd. And, well, one part I did like about that was that he was asking silly questions to David. Mm -hmm. And he knew who Margaret Thatcher was. Of course. (laughs) But by asking those questions, he can see what was very important to them about Margaret Thatcher. Um, And then he saw that there was markings on the table where it lied. Mm -hmm. How it's important, how he knew it was important, that was too thin for me, again, to figure out. Well, he was saying somebody came in here 
and obviously messed with it because nothing purposely, nothing else on the table was touched. Mm -hmm. Because it is a shrine, it was kept immaculately. Every single day, the picture is put in exactly the right spot, nothing moved, and yet this one item is gone. So whoever took it came in there with a mind just to get that. Now he knows that's got to go somewhere. But yes, the whole thing kind of hangs together a little bit on a whim for this moment. And I think that's why in the next scene, perhaps Sherlock does go to talk to Mycroft about it a little more. Maybe he's hoping to work that out in his head a bit. That's where they talk about the idea of premonitions. By the way, we see several times, and it's in this interaction, just a side note, that Mycroft calls Sherlock brother mine. Mm. And I don't know if that's an old terminology or if that's English terminology, but I've never heard it said before. It's beautiful. And I thought it was almost endearing. We haven't seen too much affection from Mycroft towards Sherlock, but that felt a, a little like that. And then you go to seeing a man smashing another bust and you hear the word ammo being repeated in the background. Ammo. Then we cut back over to outside of 221 Baker Street where Lestrade talks to that woman about how they met Sherlock. I don't remember what her name is, but she's there to talk to him about a case and they wake patiently outside his apartment to speak to him. And they almost talk about him with a little bit of a reverence. It was a different attitude, the way people are looking at Sherlock and his abilities than what we've seen before. They're not just busting right in with their important news. They're kind of listening to Sherlock's rules to wait outside. outside. Yeah, It was a little bit bizarre to me. And then even getting yelled at for being too loud, and they're both like, sorry, sorry. (laughs) Meanwhile, inside, Sherlock is meeting with a client and giving him his observations. And he makes... A key statement. The client says, I thought you'd done something clever, but now you've explained it, it's dead simple. Mm. And it takes Sherlock down a peg that this man isn't impressed by the reasoning he's come up with to the point that he actually has to come up with this whole ridiculous fake story. Mm. Well, Almost like a defense mm, mechanism. That whole conversation, I forget Mm -hmm. the book, where the guy says it's kind of simple. That happens in the book. And then Sherlock's retort is, you're kind of simple or something Mm. like that. And then that story that he made up is actually a story that happened in a book. (laughs) Yeah, and then Lestrade comes back in to tell him about the second bust that was broken all the way across town, meaning it can't be coincidence. Sherlock realizes it's a thing. They're identical. This is, of course, where he references the Black Pearl mystery. And he says, this is my game face. The game is on. Yeah, that game face was an awesome face of the bust breaking. Mm -hmm. That was so cool the way they did that. So they take a trip to see Toby. This was also classic where you think you're going to meet a man named Toby. And it turns out it's Craig, who is the hacker, and his dog, Toby. Also, by humorous happenstance, Mary shows up with the baby. (laughs) And you think that she's going to get sent home, but then they actually both turn around and tell them they're sending Watson home. Yeah, she's better at this than you. Yes. (laughs) And he's all bent out of shape. It's They're making light of it, but really it is the beginning of bringing up a deeper issue of what's going on in the relationship between John and Mary. 
things have started to slow down a little bit and they're having to adjust to a more normal life. Mm -hmm. And neither one of them wants to just stay home with the baby. In fact, later on when they get the call to come to the case, they both sort of hop up and start running right to the door and then realize, oh, we can't both leave. We have a child. We need to get somebody to watch this child. But that's still where their mindset is at and they're longing for that adrenaline. And so after a couple of minutes of banter here, they decide that they're all going to go. John, Mary, the baby. (laughs) And the dog. And the dog. They all follow Toby, who has the scent of blood that was left on the piece of bust when the burglar cut himself. They're trying to follow the trail. He follows the scent to where it ends, where the wounded man fled to the butcher's market and lost the scent. Clever. Well, if you were wounded and you knew you were leaving a trail, where would you go? Not hiding a tree in a forest. Blood in a butcher's. Never mind, Toby. Better luck next time. Hmm? This is it, though. This is the one. I can feel it. Oh, Moriarty. has to be him. It's too bizarre. It's too baroque. It's designed to beguile me, tease me, and lure me in. Last. A noose for me to put my neck into. Something funny about the dog is that... Uh, you know that scene where he, they're just sitting on the p- pavement and he's, they're just sitting there he's waiting not for going the dog? <laughs> that wasn't part of the writing. They had to put that in there. It was not intentional. As Mark Gaddis and Stephen Moffat revealed during the Q&A following the screening of the episode, in fact, they were forced to quickly write the pavement scene in during filming in order to account for the fact that the dog wouldn't follow the script. <laughs> the dog didn't want to do anything. <laughs> That's hysterical. This dog, the fact that they put him in the story... Mm-hmm. Wouldn't mean much except for when Mary knocks Sherlock out later on. Sherlock has a dream of a dog. And I think they both, nothing is by mistake. They both are in that to give you a metaphor of Redbeard. Mm-hmm. Redbeard is Sherlock's dog as a child. And we're led to believe that either something happened to the dog or something happened to Sherlock and the dog helped him. Something important in Sherlock's life happened with this dog. We also saw in a previous season that Sherlock has a memory of the dog and its importance, and it's actually what he holds on to, I think, after Mary initially shoots him, right? And he needs to cling to life somehow mm-hmm. and remember something comforting, and he pictures That's the dog. Right. yeah. I also thought that I heard somebody mention this is a reference to another one of the old original Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's stories about a dog solving the case. Most likely, yeah. This scene ends where Craig, when they return, has found the bus suppliers who they sold to. He has the names, and so Sherlock knows who the remaining two victims will be, and he goes about trying to find them. And for some reason, he put this together that this must be Moriarty at this point. I think he puts it together when he realizes there are definitely more suppliers they all come from busts of famous people, and it just reeks, no pun intended, mm. of a bigger scheme. And, and so he's seeing ghosts everywhere is really the point that comes up throughout the episode often. You see what I mean, though, by the main villain in this episode is still Moriarty? It is, but it, at this in his head, it time was. frame, it's not holding him back. It is still leading him to the next clue and giving him incentive to follow the trail. And he does follow it to the house of the next bust where he encounters the thief. And that turns out to be AJ. 
There's a fight scene where they rustle in the pool. First time we get to see Cumberbatch's Sherlock in a physical fight, I believe. Yeah, and he does pretty well. Yeah. We got to see Robbie D's Sherlock fight, I think, in the first scene we meet him. He's in like a, not a street fight, but an organized fight, and he like deduces how he's going to punch him and all that stuff. Yeah, you and I talked about that after the episode where you said it's interesting that we never see that with this Sherlock. And my thought was, even with Robert Downey Jr.'s rendition, it was so much less about the physicality and more about mentally he knew how somebody was going to move, where Mm -hmm. he would have to hit them to make maximum impact. And so naturally it kind of did make him a good fighter. Yeah, break the second and third vertebrae. Yeah, he was more sciency mm-hmm. in the movie. I kind of liked that. Me too. I missed having some of that. And again, Sherlock in this scene is lucky he didn't get shot. This dude's always lucky not to get shot, except for by one person, Mary. <laughs> yes, and this is also where he finds the flash drive inside of the smashed bust, and he sees it's marked Agra. He's very confused. He doesn't understand how this all ties back to Mary. The man says he intends to kill her, but escapes as the police arrive. It's not possible. How could she? Everything about who I was is on there. The problems of your past are your business. The problems of your future are my privilege. these couple of scenes, you also see flashbacks. They tell us it's to Tbilisi, Georgia, six years ago. The first is of Agra breaking into a building to save hostages. They become trapped in a room, and the others turn and ask Mary, what now? And she says, we die. Then, trying to escape a warehouse, AJ, one of the members of the team, hides his flash drive inside of a bust. Finally, you see AJ being held hostage in a room and tortured while a man repeats ammo. The men say, what would he do if he knew about the Englishwoman, the traitor? You don't quite know yet how all of these things tie together, but it's starting to paint a picture that Mary was involved in something. We will find out about that in the next scene, the whole background of it. Some kind of mission that went awry This man, AJ, was part of that, and he believes that Mary betrayed them. So now he's out to get revenge. I don't understand, and I probably should save this till later, but I'll forget, these men that were beating him, why they were just beating him, and why they were saying ammo. Once we know what ammo means, Mm -hmm. it doesn't make sense why you would be beating him saying ammo. Unless that was the only word they knew about the thumb drive. I don't know. Maybe. I, again, there's, there are so many points that just seem to hang very loosely. And when you start scratching the surface, it's not quite all there. 
you don't really know why the hostages were taken in the first place. You don't really know why they kept AJ for six years. Hmm. Uh, You do know that this was all at the command of Vivian. You find out later that she was behind the plan going awry, but there's so much more to it than that, and we don't completely get answers to, to all the questions. What we do find out more about is Mary's direct tie to this in the background. So next, Sherlock and Mary go to a secret meeting place. This location was kind of cool. It, it looked like just an old stone building from the outside. Then they went in and it was almost like underground caves in a sense. Yeah. There were stone benches and it was very secret spy meeting. Sherlock starts questioning Mary, who explains that she and her colleagues were members of a freelance task force named AGRA. This was an acronym for the names of the four members, Alex, Gabriel, herself, and AJ. They each had memory sticks, which guaranteed absolute trust between the members, because all of them had information on aliases, backgrounds, etc., anything they could use to really exploit the other person if, if it got out. Paying clients were employing them. They were at the top of their game, really the best, until a failed rescue mission in Georgia to retrieve the kidnapped members of the British Embassy. They were sent into free hostages, but in a last-minute change of plan, it was set off by the code word ammo, and it all went wrong, and Mary was the only one to get out alive. Now, Agra, this reminds me. So we know this episode is strongly related to the six Napoleons, Mm -hmm. but Agra as well. In the original Sherlock Holmes story, The Sign of Four, the Agra treasure is a great hoard of pearls and jewels stolen from the Indian city of the same name. But there's a similar principle in play since the treasure was to be equally divided between four men who each made a pact not to betray the other. So in many ways, the six Thatchers is as much based on the sign of four as it is the six Napoleons. Oh, wow, that's cool. It actually seems like maybe even more. I wonder, is that the same town that Mycroft is referencing when Sherlock comes in and says, tell me about Agra? And he's like, oh, it's a city, blah, 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 blah. And Sherlock's like, what are you, Wikipedia? That's not what I'm talking (laughs) about, and you know it. No, in any point of this show, did you start to think maybe Mary was the one to betray? And and like hopefully there's a good reason, so we won't well, hate her. Yeah, certainly in the first flashback where we see them asking her what now and she just says we die, and yet she doesn't die. It appears that everyone else does. That does make it look like she betrayed them, especially when the man says it was the English woman that did it. Yeah. But the way she's talking to Sherlock here, and in the next moment where he tells her that AJ actually did survive, and this is what he's been doing, looking for the memory stick he hid so that he could come back and get his revenge on her, she doesn't seem to be guilty. She says all she wanted was some peace, but she knew that her past would come back to haunt her. It's at that point that Sherlock promises to keep her safe. Yes. And that's a line he's going to repeat over and over throughout this episode to both John and Mary. Just stay with me. I'll keep you safe. I promise to protect you. He really means it, and he hammers the point home. That's what's going to come back to to ruin him later. During this episode to remind us that he wants to keep him safe. Also, and you did touch upon this in Series 3, Episode 2, my favorite episode, his last vow that's where he vowed to protect Mary, the baby, and Watson. Yes. And that's why John blames Sherlock. But what's more important is we go from a Sherlock who doesn't care about anybody 
to a Sherlock that has one friend and finally realizes he has one friend to Sherlock now has three people he loves and really cares about. Mm -hmm. I think he loves Mycroft too, but he doesn't have to protect Mycroft. So that, I mean, that's what's really important about this. We're seeing an emotional side of Sherlock. And I think it weakens him in certain ways. And, And that's what I was saying before. I think that's what throws him off his game more than anything. He makes the mission to protect his family just as important as the mission to solve the case. And with his genius being equally split, perhaps he can't be on the top of his game with either. But going back to what you said about Mary, I think that I was in debate continuing through the end of this scene because she drugs Sherlock. At the end of them talking, he passes out from whatever she puts on that piece of paper that he smells and takes off. Well, I believe she did it to pro- for his own protection, but why not have him help? I don't understand. They would have been better prepared. Well, they ended up doing it together anyways, but a lot less time would have gone by. She wouldn't have had to do all those. She wants to equally to keep all of them safe. Mm-hmm. And so she's trying to, quote, move the target away from them. And she thinks she can do that successfully because of her background. But, but at this particular moment you don't really know what her game is fully what she's up to if she has done something that she's being haunted by now and after she takes off Sherlock then goes back to Mycroft saying he wants him to look into ammo and Mycroft makes a key statement here that he will do it but Sherlock won't be able to save Mary forever and that women like her often meet an early demise another foreshadowing Yes, many of them looking back on the episode. This is when we get into Mary's journey. John returns home to find the note Mary left saying she has to leave in order to keep him and the baby safe, but she will come back. People will follow her, but they won't be able to find her because each of her moves will be completely random at the roll of a dice. And we get a montage of her traveling to different countries using different disguises It's cute, the first scene that happens in the airplane. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, that was good. She had an accent. She had a whole character. I mean, she takes planes, boats, motorcycles, car, camel, walking, all randomly with wigs and outfits. Going to tons of different cities. Oh, my goodness. Traveling a very far distance. Just to walk into the room and there's Sherlock. Yes. Who shows up at her hotel room. She can't figure it out. He starts to spin her a tall tale, but then says, no, I just stuck a tracer inside of your memory (laughs) stick. (laughs) And they both get a laugh out of that. They do until she sees that John is there too. And he's not too happy. He says she should have stayed and talked to him and they could have worked it through. And it's then that AJ turns up and starts shooting. He tells his story of how he was tortured for fun and remained a hostage for six years until they forgot about him and he was able to escape from his cell. He is convinced that Mary was behind that based on what he heard. She swears that she did not betray him. Sherlock is trying to both coax the truth out of him to find out exactly what was said in that moment and Mm -hmm. I think also maybe calm him down a bit by distracting him and bringing him to the truth of what he heard might not be what he thought he heard. But they don't have enough time to work that out because... The police, I think, arrive and shoot, shoot him. They kill him. I think they were getting a breakthrough there. And at that point, it wasn't even Sherlock. It was Mary that was getting through to him. 
And we were about to find out. And this guy's an assassin. It would have been good to have him as part of the team if, like, they all figured it out together. Well, that's what I mean, though. Sherlock was a big part of that because he was trying to step the guy down from his emotion that yeah. he had just been stuck on this thing for six, six years. years, that he heard something and assumed it was Mary. But wait, what did they actually say? Yeah. And you, you could almost see how those gears would start turning. Like, are you sure this adds up to Mary? So, uh, yeah, I think maybe they would have all gotten it in the end because I don't think neither AJ nor Mary wanted to shoot. No. Deep down, I don't think AJ actually wanted her to die. All this just because it was said that it was an English woman. Yes. We'll find out. And they're out. an English agency, aren't they? So chances are it'd be an English person. Yeah. But right? it's just the first thing that came into his head, and he's had a long time to mull that over. Well, we go for a second to a very different kind of scene where John remembers on their plane ride back the encounter that he had with the woman on the bus, E, who I found out in the credits is named Elizabeth, and that has its own references, of course. E gave him her number, and her and John started secretly texting and talking. It's unclear if they ever actually met up, but we know that they got to know each other. And after what seemed to be cultivating into an affair, John finally cut it off. So this is one of the scenes where maybe the place they put it, something just didn't feel right about mm-hmm. it. And that's what seemed to drag a little bit. It might have been because I subconsciously want John to be like the perfect guy. Maybe that was it. Yeah, I don't know. This wasn't that long. They were very briefly. It was actually the Mary stuff and the ammo stuff and everything with AJ that really dragged out a bit. The Watson scenes were fairly short. He did not get a ton of screen time. Well, there was that the bus scene, but also the scene with him texting her while he was having coffee, then texting her in the bed. Yeah, like well, that it, kind of it went back it. to showing that because you didn't know what it was the first time you saw it. Mm-hmm. When they first ran through it, he was just rolling over in bed Mm -hmm. and his phone was buzzing. I actually thought it was Sherlock bothering him with a case. But when he starts off this montage by saying, so many lies and I don't just mean you, and then he begins thinking about all of those seemingly normal moments, we now begin to realize that they were, in fact, the culmination of an affair he was starting to have. But didn't. It got cut short. Well, he cut it short. He was done with it. But I had asked you what was the point of that. Yeah, well, I think it's twofold. There was some speculation that this woman is going to come back in later. And she's going to tie back into the bigger picture somehow. People referenced the fact that her red hair looked like an obvious wig and perhaps is going to be a disguise. She was sitting on the bus underneath a poster that featured Toby Jones's face. Hmm. So perhaps that's subtly linking her future connection to him. But I thought at least in this episode, the importance was to go back to how both him and Mary were struggling with trying to maintain that normal life. And she felt like she kept messing up, that she could never outrun her past that John forgave her for, but it keeps coming back to ruin them, as we see with everything that's happening with Agra here. And even in the present, she feels like he is the perfect man and she doesn't deserve him. She says that several times. I've never doubted that you're a good man. And he's thinking to himself, it's not just her. They're both having their own struggle with that. I think him being tempted to have an affair with this woman is because 
he needs that excitement. He mm-hmm. doesn't know how to live that normal life either. Also, I think the viewer needed to see that he wasn't the perfect guy with everything happening to him. Yes, and with her about to die, it can't it couldn't just be her with the faults. Right, exactly. They're more on equal footing in the relationship. But because there's no precedent for it before that, it does feel a little bit jammed into this episode for the sake of making that point. And I think a lot of things were so that we could wrap up the Mary story within one episode leading to her death. We get a short scene after that of Sherlock making the conclusion that ammo means ammo, A-M-O. He goes to Mycroft with the conclusion and he thinks it's tied to Lady Smallwood because she once worked on a mission with the code name Love. So she's brought in for questioning, but she denies the accusations to Mycroft, and he believes her. We get a lot of Mycroft this episode. Yes. And some people thought it was too much. I didn't mind him. I I loved that character. Well, I read something about needing his oily sarcasm in small doses, and Mm -hmm. I could kind of see that because you do have enough brilliant, crazy, negative people running around in the Sherlock world. But I, too, enjoy him, I think, mostly when he's interacting with Sherlock, though. Okay, in one of our two final scenes, we have the meeting at the London Aquarium. This is where Vivian sets up the meeting with Sherlock and tells him she was ammo. She used Agra as her private assassination unit because she sold secrets for many years and made money until the ambassador in Tbilisi found out. Vivian reveals that she tipped off the terrorists on the rescue so the hostages, including the ambassador and Agra, could be eliminated. She thought they had all been killed and she could finally have peace, but it didn't turn out that way. And Sherlock starts to unravel the mystery behind Vivian Norbury, that her motivation was jealousy to make up for her inadequate life. Mary tries to stop him from going over the edge, but he doesn't listen. Mycroft and the police show up, but they can't stop her from shooting at Sherlock. And this is where Mary jumps in the way and takes the bullet. John holds her as she dies. When she tells Sherlock she always liked him, they're even now. And she tells John being Mary Watson was the only life worth living. Man. It's a lot. So, okay. You went through a lot there. One thing that really pissed me off about this scene is you have in this room an old lady Hmm. with a gun. You have Sherlock. Mm -hmm. You have a trained assassin in Mary. You have a lead detective in Inspector Lestrade. Mm -hmm. You have three or two cops there. And Mycroft. And Mycroft. (laughs) And this woman, this old woman still gets the shot off? How? How is no one else pointing a gun? They could have been, but she could have still fired. And there's nothing you can do to stop that. And Mary recognized that. She recognized it escalating and tried to stand him down. I really was thinking the whole time, especially when she said, I can still surprise you, that she was going to turn the gun on herself because she would rather die than be taken in and have to deal with this now. Right. You know, this is the wrap-up of The Ultimate Secret, which... They strung out throughout the entire episode. I mean, we learned about Agra and its background about a million times. There was nothing surprising by the time she got to the conclusion of the story. And the fact that, whoa, big secret, she paid them off. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not something we've never heard before. So I just think that wasn't quite original enough. We didn't have enough background 
history with Vivian. She just was a stenographer. We saw for a few moments at the beginning of the episode, she wasn't exactly evil. The biggest thing about this scene was that she did manage to shoot. Mm-hmm. And it would have hit Sherlock had Mary not jumped in the way at the last minute. <sighs> I might have missed this. Why did ammo happen? Why? What was the reasoning for this betrayal? They had sent Agra in to try to save the hostages. But being the secretary and hearing everything that goes on there, and we got allusion to that in the beginning when Mary made a reference to yeah, that, secretaries hear everything. Yeah. When she found <laughs> out that Lady Smallwood was going to give that order to send Agra in and have them save the hostages, she knew one of them was this ambassador in Tbilisi that had found out about what Vivian was doing, and she couldn't have that. She couldn't have her saved. So she instead sent in a different code word, which Mm -hmm. was ammo. So instead of get them out and save them, that meant something else. And she tipped the hostage takers off to that, Okay. that this rescue mission was going to come in so that it would thwart them. And that's why the minute Agra got there, they started shooting at them because they knew that was going to happen. So she thought everybody would just keep shooting until the hostages, the takers, Agra, everybody was dead, and her secret would remain safe. So you also get the ultimate point of the episode, which is the heart-wrenching death of Mary, and really more so John's reaction. So people are very split about this. Um, Some viewers really liked Mary and didn't want to see her taken out of the equation. Some people felt that it was time because as the creators tell us, this story is really always about the duo between Sherlock and Watson. And we've talked about that a lot. Mm -hmm. And this highlighted just how odd it was to try to have the trio and that didn't really fit in with Mary coming on the cases and how that was going to work. So they, they felt that sooner rather than later, they had to get back to where Sherlock is meant to be. And it's the story of Sherlock and John. All right, I get that. But I enjoyed her because she had something different to put into the story or to help out with. It's not like she was a replica of a character and we didn't need her. No, but how do you reconcile that trio? You saw that it wasn't really working out here for the three of them to go on solving oh, cases see. together. You know, how do you make that fit? I loved she her was character. great, I loved... and she did a good job portraying it. Yeah, and my favorite episode is with her in it. But I, I understand why. She also had maybe too easy of an understanding of Sherlock, and we talked about that from the very beginning. She liked him. She was able to read him. She got him. <laughs> um, and he always had a tough time reading her. Right. So... It's a different type of relationship there where I don't know if that's necessarily exciting in the long run the way that this Sherlock Watson story is. And it's going to become very interesting, a little more angsty Hmm. uh, with this emotional suffering that's going to happen now because the end of this scene is Watson sobbing. I mean, really gutturally, almost roaring to himself at her death. Okay. So, one, I love the way Mary died, mm-hmm. the way they acted it out. Being Mary Watson was the only life worth living. It was very touching. It was beautiful. Now, I've said about past episodes how well Martin Freeman does 
in these situations with these emotions when he's sad about Sherlock being dead, when he's happy but pissed off that Sherlock is alive. This one, I didn't really like it. I didn't like the... (laughs) It just didn't work for me. I loved it because I've seen people go through the range of the worst of human emotions, the worst of suffering. It was such an accurate depiction of what happens when grief hits you unexpectedly. She was there a second ago and now she's gone. Not only that, she said something that he can't even wrap his brain around. They were just starting to figure out how to let go of the past and try to be in a relationship together. And does he forgive her? Does he forgive himself for what he was doing with this sort of affair that he began? And it's all erased in that moment that she says that to him. They were also just beginning this letting of Sherlock into that. And and Mm -hmm. not only is that gone, he blames Sherlock. He thinks it's his fault for not keeping her safe. So there's an anger, there's a resentment, there's a how could you, Mm -hmm. you know, you you were supposed to be as much as I hate you, kind of my hero that always comes in and manages to fix it and save it and you couldn't do it this time and now she's gone. And there's so many things mm-hmm. wrapped up in that. And if you just sit there blankly staring or if you just cry, I, I don't think it conveys that. It was almost animalistic and it did sound like he was growling. Um, so I love... So I, I okay. almost wish there was a little more of it before he actually said something. To Sherlock because he found his words kind of quickly. I, I, I wish it had gone on a little longer, but when he does look up and condemn him, say, you know, he, how could don't you? Don't you dare. And he says, yeah. don't you dare, Sherlock. Yeah, I he promised. You made a vow. Right. Now, this is a grown man. It's not like a child saying, Dad, you, you always said that you would. Mm-hmm. This, this isn't something that he could have really avoided. I mean, there was a few times where it's because of Sherlock mm-hmm. this happened. AJ wouldn't have found them if Sherlock didn't follow her. Mm-hmm. What she would have done, was she gone forever? Was she hiding or she was going to find AJ? I think she said she was going to come back at some point. I don't know if she said her ultimate goal was to lead the target away. Now, I don't think it was to kill him. I think she hoped maybe she'd be able to explain to him, reconcile. I'm not sure, but... I see what you're saying. Also, before I forget, when AJ, when Sherlock finds AJ the first time, it's mm-hmm. AJ, right? I keep yeah. saying it. It better be right. <laughs> uh, before he finds out it's a thumb drive, he says her, you know her. And like he's the one that helped AJ piece together that Mary's still alive and her new name's Mary and you know her. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of things like these mistakes that Sherlock wouldn't do. So in those circumstances, yes, it's Sherlock's fault. But she's a grown adult. She's an assassin, for God's sakes. She chose to go there. So did Watson. They were very excitedly wanting to go there. Mm-hmm. So why is it Sherlock's fault where you're never going to speak to him again? Well, there's a couple of things. Yeah, they chose to go there. But again, under that idea, and falsely so, I think on, on Watson's part, it was that he could always keep them safe. Like They're taking part in this because there hasn't been any any real life-threatening danger yet. You know, there's maybe for Mary, for the baby, for for the people he cares about, you know, like Sherlock's been able to do that. Which again, it's, it's, I mean, that's a naive way of thinking, but 
I would understand if John had been there at the culmination scene where he's talking to Vivian because it really was Sherlock's fault in the moment. He was doing a typical Sherlock thing where he couldn't help himself. He started running his mouth and that's what set her off to shoot. Had I been there, I would blame it on him too. Mary was even telling him, stop, you know, like, what are you doing? But John wasn't there in that moment. So Mm -hmm. it really just has to come down to the fact that he made a promise and he couldn't keep it. I mean, he's emotional. You know, we, what are you going to do? You're looking for somebody to blame at that moment. And not yourself. But we do know that later on, he's still not talking to him. Yes. And I don't want to be a dead horse, but... Watson almost died many times on the train when the bomb was going to explode. There, I mean, there's been plenty of occasions. But he didn't. Right. That's what I mean. Sherlock always found a way of getting them out of it at the last minute. So there, there is this safety blanket. And, and like I said, I also think it's different risking that for yourself than for the people you love. But... I completely agree. It's not just a heat of the moment thing. He holds on to it. And we don't know how much time has gone by. It's natural that he's going to feel like that for a while. He's been through a lot in his life. Only just managed to get over the trauma and the loss that he suffered during his service Mm -hmm. once he met Sherlock. You know, he had to go through a lot for that. And Mary is really what brought, I think, the hope and the love back in his life. And now that she's gone, it's really hard seeing what's going to bring him out of this. So we get these last couple of moments where John is walking through a cemetery in a daze. Sherlock is talking to a therapist because he needs to know what to do about John. Mrs. Hudson is talking to Sherlock, saying they will have to go on and care for the baby. And Sherlock finds a DVD that was mailed labeled, Miss Me?, which, of course, he mistakenly thinks is Moriarty at first. But so it, did we. Right. Absolutely. It turns out to be a video from Mary giving Sherlock the hardest case of his career if she is gone to save John Watson. And then Sherlock going to see Molly to check on the baby, but she passes on the message from John that he'd rather anyone but Sherlock. So they're really driving the point home. He's finally trying to do the right thing and to help I mean, he even went to see a therapist, for goodness sakes. That's really not Sherlock-like, and he's not forgiven him yet. It's going to take a while. I want to know what's in that letter. We probably will find out. And then you get this uh, weird separate clip mixed in there of Mycroft, where he's calling somebody on the phone and looking at something on the refrigerator that says 13. So a few things. On this CD, this was very touching, and I like that this is perhaps the last we see of Mary, and her saying, I need you to do one more, one last case for me. Mm-hmm. So, this is in case... in case the day comes. If you're watching this, I'm probably dead. I hope I can have an ordinary life, but who knows? Nothing's certain, nothing's written. My old life... It was full of consequences. The danger was the fun part, but you can't outrun that forever. You need to remember that, so... I'm giving you a case, Sherlock. Might be the hardest case of your career. When I'm... gone, if I'm gone, 
I need you to do something for me. Save John Watson. Save him, Sherlock. Save him. And I think that's going to ring true through the rest of this series. This is going to be what's most important to Sherlock, besides maybe Moriarty, but to find a way to save him from himself, I'm Mm -hmm. assuming. What's the best way to do that? So we first meet John Watson, series one, episode one, with a therapist. Mm Mm-hmm. And now it comes back around to Sherlock as seeing a therapist. He says he needs to know what to do about John. And she says something pivotal there, too. You feel like the whole world has come crashing down around you. Everything is hopeless and irretrievable. Hmm. Really highlighting Does a therapist say... They're not supposed to tell you what you feel. I think they're supposed to reflect what you're telling them. So she's kind of inferring that from, I guess, everything he said to her before we see them now on screen. And he's just kind of like, I'm not really here, though, to talk about my feelings. I just need to know what to do. How do I help him? And therapists don't do that. And he he ends up getting that answer from Mrs. Hudson, so he thinks, which is to go on, to care for the baby, to figure out how to keep going, and he tries to do that. And, geez, Molly, she is not trying to help Sherlock anymore. This is what John told her to do, and she's doing it. And she was pretty harsh with the way she delivered that message. I don't think she was trying to be. She was blunt. Sometimes uh, people need the bluntness, but um, obviously we know it's not over for them. Yeah. I hope they get a chance to talk. I, I like seeing the humanistic part of Sherlock. This is good to see him broken like this emotionally, not broken because of mentally... Yes, I just don't know how long I want, want that this. to go of course, on for. Yes. That's, that's not fun. Especially when we only have two more episodes. We had a very long, sort of emotional, looking more at the relationship type of episode. Mm-hmm. We didn't get some of that classic detective stuff we were looking for. So, you know, I, I hope that comes back around soon. And also you mentioned the touching video from Mary, which I agree with, but... That was completely confused by this post-credit scene. Yes. Where we see additional DVD footage of Mary saying, go to hell, Sherlock, scathingly, not jokingly. So, so we didn't see the full CD. No. I wonder, uh, I wonder what that means. That's got to be something later on. What if she's not really dead and she's been working for Moriarty the whole time? Do-do-do-do. Hmm. I haven't read the books, so I'm probably way off. It, it's out of left field, but I was, you just actually made me think about the fact that she was the one who shot Sherlock and was able to tell him, you know this in his mind, you know, it's really mm-hmm. him, but you know this isn't a fatal wound, this is how you fall so that you don't die. But then the thing is, Watson was there, and Watson's a doctor, and I'm sure mm-hmm. he was checking her pulse and whatever else. So I don't know if there's any hope of that. Um, You also brought up that this is going to come back to Moriarty. Now, again, we didn't see him all episode. What makes you think that that's really still a thing? I believe it is. That it's not just in Sherlock's mind that he's still (laughs) out there. (sighs) Well, we do know that he figured out that he's dead, but still out there when he was on a trip. 
So it could be in his mind, but I believe he's got one more trick up his sleeve. Are you going based off canon? Because I think original Sherlock canon would tell us he does come back in the final episode of this season. No, I'm going off of, well, I guess so. I mean, I'm going off of things I read and mm-hmm. and, and things. Moriarty's the best villain they've ever had. Yes. So why not have him who plans out everything to the T and has all these things structured and payments already made for things to go into play. When he's killing himself, when he's going to shoot himself in series two, mm-hmm. he has a smile on his face, almost like, I still got you, fucker. You yeah. just wait. I agree. I think what confuses me is they are about to introduce this new villain, Toby Jones, who we haven't even seen yet. Mm -hmm. So two is the earliest he can make his appearance. And then we're also going to bring back Moriarty unless they're connected somehow. Yes. They're the same person. You know how the mask changes faces. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it could all be tied in. Yeah. Now we spoke about this, but I want to go back to it. The Mycroft in the fridge scene. Yes. Oh, wait, real quick. What if that last scene of Mary saying, go to hell, Sherlock? was Sherlock uh, having a nightmare about the fact that he can't save John. So she's actually pissed off because he's failing to save him, to even get in touch with him. There's so many things it could so be. So many, yeah. It, it actually could have just been a joke. I mean, two seconds later, she could be like, ha-ha. I don't know. I really that. like you. <laughs> no. Okay, so back to the Mycroft fridge. A couple fun things. A little wink-wink again. Mm-hmm. Before you see the sticky note, that says 13th on it. He's taking off a Chinese restaurant menu. Mm-hmm. And on the menu, the restaurant's name was Regate Square. Yes, I read about this too. <laughs> yeah. And this is very, very similar to the Regate Squire, the name of a short story that appears in the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes. Another one, another wink, wink. Now, we know this is a, something. He takes off that menu. We see the 13th note appear. And, and then he calls Sherriford. Yes. A location, right? Well, I have a note about that too. Go for it. Okay. You have a sticky note? Yes, I is do. Is it on the fridge? Sharonford is widely acknowledged to be the name of the third Holmes brother. Oh. So we got a hint about this. Mycroft dropped it early in season three. That's right. That there was another one of them. He also makes a reference to it in this episode. Something about he doesn't have a lot of fondness for his his siblings. Remember what happened to the other brother or something of that That's nature? Right. And he wasn't at that Christmas party with the parents. Right. So in some stories about Sherlock, not Doyle stories, there is this third brother and his name is Sharonford, which, by the way, was the initial name that they were going to name Sherlock. That's right. And he decided to change it. But one of the theories out there states that if Mycroft was the eldest brother, that would also make him the heir because it seems like they come from a wealthy family or one that has titles. So he wouldn't be able to have the job that he has in the government. And Sherlock wouldn't be able to do what he's doing if it then passes to him. So they actually invented this fictitious brother that will be the heir to the family inheritance so that they can both do what it is they want to do. Not going to have... So that's a fun theory out there, but I think that maybe in this version of Sherlock, there could actually have been a third brother that something happened to. Maybe. Either way, that's going to be something exciting I think we're going to get more of. And that brother will be played by Matt Smith in season four, (laughs) series four. (laughs) I just have to say, there was one final thing for this episode. 
we see Sherlock at the end saying, when does the path we walk on lock around our feet? When does the road become a river with only one destination? Death waits for us all in Samara, but can Samara be avoided? And so again, that's just tying everything together that we opened up the episode on this tale. And if anything gives a central theme to the six Thatchers, it's the tale of the merchant and Samara and death and the idea of the past catching up with you and Sherlock reflecting on how many lives that's changed in his circle. And is there something that you can do about that? So is there a fate, a predetermination, or do you write your own story? Of course, we did mention in our prequel episode that when the credits roll, there are certain letters that are highlighted in red, and we heard that those will always spell out something that relates to the episode. And this time, if you watched, it spelled out six Napoleons. We had a clatcher on Twitter that also gave us the heads up about this week's red letter affair. At Yoda Claus looked out for the red letters at the end and said that it was six Napoleons, which was awesome. So thank you and keep a lookout for those. Yeah, we urge you to keep up that hunt because it is a little hard to catch it when the credits run so fast like that. Well, we've talked about all the particulars, so it's that time to give our rating overall for this episode. So... It's no longer Westworld, so it's no longer... Reveries. So we're going to go with... And we had a hard time trying to figure out what to do with this one. But we're going to go with Deerstalkers. Yes. Which is the hat that Sherlock rarely wears, but it's so iconic that everyone knows Sherlock as that person in the hat. Makes sense for this, this series. So 1 to 10, what do you give episode 1? I'm going 8.8 Deerstalkers. Okay. It's still up there. It's still high. Um, but I will tell you that this is one of my favorite shows in the world. <laughs> and after two and a half years or whatever, two years, not counting last year's special, um, I, my expectations were probably too high. Yes. And it was, there's no way it would have lived up to what I wanted. With that being said, I think they can do better. And I'm very excited for the next two episodes. I know those are going to kick us in the ass and we're going to be ecstatic. <laughs> I loved it. Again, I liked it much more the second time I watched it. I'm sure if I watched it a third time, I liked it even more. It had a different feel from the other Sherlock episodes. And I think, especially, I think that put me off the first time. But I think this is an episode that is needed to catapult us to episode two and three. I'm going to give it an 8.5, Dear Stalkers. Ooh. Which, thinking about it, is the lowest. Might be the lowest I've ever gone for any show we've reviewed. Uh, there might have been a Mr. Robot hanging even a little lower <laughs> than that somewhere. But as you said, if you think on a scale from 1 to 10, that's still on the higher end. I had the same issue. We haven't done Sherlock reviews, unfortunately, for series 1 through 3 because... If we had, I'm sure I would have been in the nines and above for, for all of most of the episodes. Yeah. When we did our prequel, I was thinking back on it, and I don't know that I would have gone below a 9.5. So my expectations were very high as well. It was a combination of everything we've discussed, the lack of a real central villain, not introducing Toby Jones, not bringing back Moriarty, having some points that dragged a little bit throughout the episode, Having some differences in the way relationships work from what we've seen for so long, just all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. uh, the trying to tie up the Mary thing all in one episode because they knew they were getting rid of her. There was 
too much they were trying to do and lay foundation for, and I felt the really good things didn't get enough focus, and the other things maybe got a little too much. So the timing was a little bit weird for me. But like you mentioned, I would like to go back after the series is ended and see if this holds up a little bit better as a foundation for the whole thing instead of a standalone episode. You know, I want to thank Glenn, who wrote to us on our Facebook page. I have been listening to your podcast for a while, and I have been searching for an R word, for example, reveries, uh, rating for Westworld. How about ratiocination? (laughs) Though it's very long-winded, and the only R word I can find or think of. So I want to thank you, Glenn. But as you can see, we can't pick it because I can't say it. (laughs) (laughs) It actually, if you look up the definition, is perfect for what we wanted to do here. But... It is a little bit of a mouthful to have to say 8.5 ratiocinates every time, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I do love it. And um, yeah, I don't know if Deerstalkers is anywhere near as cool as that. Not at all. Unfortunately, we didn't pick that for the rating, but we did also put the word out there for our MVP. Of course, with Westworld, we had MVB, Most Valuable Being, and we were looking for something similar. So the winner of this one is MVS, Most Valuable Sleuth. And that was sent to us on our Twitter from at MMCLHFX. So thank you for that. And we love it. So we're using it. We're using it and it's your turn. Who's your MVS for this episode, Jason? I'm going to do what I normally do and be so obvious. It's Mary. She died with grace. She lived with grace. And we got to see again how capable she is as an assassin. And, uh... I just, I love her. Well, that was going to be mine. (laughs) As much as I do feel that that story dragged at certain points, the way they handled it, I actually liked learning more about her personally because she was doing the best she could to start over and make a new life and to be worthy of John and to protect John and honor the relationship that he had with Sherlock. But... (laughs) As you picked her, I am going to give an alternative backup. And that is Craig the Hacker and his dog, Toby. What? Okay. Well, we're looking at most valuable sleuth. So who actually did some serious sleuthing in this episode to figure things out? I mean, Sherlock definitely dropped the ball Mm -hmm. as far as comparing him to his normal sleuthing abilities. John did not play much of a part in figuring out the mystery here. No. Mary had her own concerns to worry about. So Her little lambs. While Toby didn't end up finding the person with the blood, he was on the right trail until he lost him at that meat market. Very right. unfortunate. But Craig was the one who found out the owners of the other bus so that Sherlock could go and actually find AJ and perpetuate the solving of the crime here. So, Okay. They're my honorary sleuth. Sleuthing team. On to Clatcher's comments. Now, we kind of sprinkled them all throughout the episode, so we only have a few left. And on the top of this segment, I want to thank our new Patreon member, Anastasia, for your Patreon pledge. On your tier, you'll have access, to name a few, to the movie cast, the bonus cast, the always 10% off coupon, to anything on our CKC store, and so much more. And it's just in time because we have two new t-shirts and a couple of new designs coming out. We already have one out right now we have two unisex shirts long sleeve uh, and short sleeve with a very cool design with one of our favorite sayings 
And we also have a women's shirt for the first time. I know we haven't offered that yet. So for those of you out there looking for some merchandise, please check it out. We're also hoping to develop some more products like that to offer you in the future, not just shirts, but a wider variety. You saw with Westworld, we had the mugs and the posters. So hopefully we can um, have more of that in the near future. Onto our Twitter, at CKC Podcast, we had a clatcher write to us. At Kelly Annan, DC226 sent us a great photo of the current 221B Baker Street in London. Now, there's a fun fact about that. It was an awesome picture. It's like a museum. Mm-hmm. It's very cool. But although that address is 221B Baker Street, that wasn't always the address. It was created for the museum. There is actually a real one on that road mm. that is 221 Baker Street, which is actually an apartment. It's a very small one. Yeah, we talked about in the prequel episode the fact that they did some of the filming for the show of the outside, but the inside of the apartment they actually had to build. So there's a fun video if you want to go on to the BBC website and check it out. They show a quick montage of the building of the inside set, which is really cool. And a shout out to at Slurner. Keep the tweets coming. We'd love to hear from you. You have one more at Yoda Claus who said this episode was not my favorite, but I think it got done what it had to for the series to progress. Boom. Which pretty That's much exactly echoes how we, feel, yeah. how we felt. We also had a really great write-in from Emily. She's one of our Patreon members. Mm-hmm. She's the best. Yeah, she gave us a story that I'd like to share with you. She says, once upon a time, I used to manage the social media channels for Verizon Fios. I did this in 2014 before they started consolidating their agencies. I talked our team into Comic-Con, media events, sci-fi previews, and more. We also went to the Emmys, and that fall, Stephen Moffat accepted the award for Best Writing on Sherlock. Also because it was the year both Benedict and Martin won, but weren't at the ceremony. I was covering the press room, and they literally just hand a mic around to everyone if you raise your hand to ask a question. And the room is huge. We have a bunch of tables and everyone is feverishly typing. And then the actor, producer, winner comes back, stands awkwardly at the mic, and then waits to be asked. Breaking Bad and Modern Family had lots of people jumping, but almost everyone else pretty much had the equivalent of a small round table. So I raised my hand and asked, since fandoms tried to crack the fall on sites like Reddit and Tumblr, what was your favorite interpretation? We posted his answer on the Fios page and then I found lots of articles which used the reference for that. That's so cool. So that's amazing, and we'll put up the links to some of those articles so you can actually check out what they said about it. And if you ever get that opportunity again, your question for him this time should be, will you go on the Coffee Clatch Crew podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness, that would be amazing. And then we'd have to have Emily on too, of course. Of course. So that wraps up this episode. Thank you, as always, for writing in, for interacting with us. We hope you will continue to do so. Give us your MVS, Most Valuable Sleuth, for next time or your rating for the episode, and we'd be happy to discuss it on our Episode 2 review, which will be The Lying Detective. And And on the preview, they describe him as the most dangerous, despicable human ever, a monster that must be ended. We know who that is. Yes. So now it's your turn to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes? Yes, please. I know that a lot of you were really helpful. You went on and you gave us so many excellent reviews for Westworld. Unfortunately, now that we're on to a new show with Sherlock, it starts all over and we have no reviews. So even if you just go on and leave a quick couple of words, that would really help us. We would appreciate it to keep this growing. So those of you for who are listening to us on our main channel, Coffee Clatch Crew, you can leave a review there as well. 
but we have that new one, which is the Sherlock one. It's mm-hmm. purple. Uh, it has the same kind of design as our other ones, which we do purposefully. So I think you'll find it easily. Follow us on Twitter at CKC Podcast, Facebook, check out our website, and keep the communication going. Until next week, this round's on me. This round is on me! Please hang up and try again. Go to hell, Sherlock.